Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, a boarding school in Missouri was abruptly shut down after the allegations of sexual physical and emotional abuse. While cities, towns, and organizations are removing statues and renaming buildings all over the country, the Southern Baptist Convention has decided to leave their buildings alone. We'll explain why. And we continue our generous living series with the story of a toy shop owner who became successful beyond his wildest dreams, but now believes it's what he gives, not what he makes that will define his legacy. We begin today with several religious liberty stories. First up, a district court has temporarily granted a request from Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. The church can now finally gather for outdoor worship services. Yeah, it's Capitol Hill Baptist Church. The pastor there is Mark Dever, and he argued that the District of Columbia's COVID-19 restrictions had violated the church's constitutional rights and was causing irreparable harm to his congregation. Judge Trevor McFadden of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia agreed and in a decision said that the church could have an outdoor service. The church had argued that since other large outdoor gatherings, specifically protests, had been happening already in Washington, D.C., then this outdoor worship gathering should be allowed as well. The government can't single out religious groups for law enforcement. I understand one of the things that made this case unusual was the location of the church. It's right on Capitol Hill in Washington. Yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of elected officials and their staff members actually attend Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and a group of 34 U.S. senators filed a motion on behalf of Capitol Hill Baptist. That's pretty unusual in and of itself. Uh, But it did have the desired effect. It also causes me to wonder, though, that if a church that doesn't that have that kind of firepower behind it uh, could have won against the bureaucratic D.C. government. I understand that one of the things that makes this case unusual was the location of the church. It's right on Capitol Hill in Washington. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, a lot of elected officials and their staff members actually attend Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and a group of 34 U.S. senators filed a motion on behalf of the church. That's unusual in and of itself, but it did have the desired effect. It does cause me to wonder, though, that if a church doesn't have that kind of firepower behind it, could it have one against the bureaucratic D.C. government? It's an interesting question. And there's another religious liberty case unfolding in Virginia. What can you tell us about that one? Well, conservative Christian nonprofit law firm, Alliance Defending Freedom, ADF, many of our listeners might know that organization, is mounting a legal challenge to the Virginia Values Act, which purports to provide discrimination protection for the LGBTQ community. But ADF claims that the Virginia Values Act forces ministries to abandon their core convictions regarding homosexuality, or they'll face hefty fines. ADF is representing plaintiffs in two separate legal actions against this legislation, uh, which was enacted in July uh, to protect the LGBTQ 
community when it comes to things like housing, employment, public spaces, and credit applications. But ADF says that the act will compel churches, religious schools, and Christian ministries to hire employees who do not share their beliefs when it comes to marriage, sexuality, and gender identity, while a companion law requires ministries to offer health plans that cover medical services such as gender reassignment surgeries that are against the beliefs and prohibits them from offering gender-specific classes in sports, which could affect Christian schools, of course. A statement from ADF said that the Constitution and the Supreme Court have made clear, and they cited the Masterpiece Cake Shop case of a couple of years ago, that the government cannot treat some people worse than others based on religion. And that's clearly what's happening here. ADF statement referred to that Supreme Court case as the case of Jack Phillips, a cake baker who wasn't required to bake a cake for gay weddings because it conflicted with his beliefs. It's a big week for religious liberty cases, and I understand that you have a third story. I do. A federal court ruled last week that a New York Christian foster care and adoption agency could continue to provide services to children and families, but only temporarily. That ruling was just for now, you might say. Uh, Syracuse-based New Hope Family Services will be able to place children with families uh, as its lawsuit continues against New York officials. Uh, The agency maintains that because of its biblical convictions that it will not recommend adoptions by same-sex couples or unmarried couples. A few years ago, New York's Office of Children and Family Services labeled those policies discriminatory. New Hope sued back in 2018, and the Office of Children and Family Services threatened to shut down the agency if it didn't make that change, at least according to court papers. It's interesting to note that New Hope Family Service Executive Director Kathy uh, German said New York had more than 25,000 children in its foster care system. So the state needs more adoption providers, not fewer. Well, that's exactly right. And besides the obvious religious liberty issues, it just makes no sense to shut down an organization like New Hope, which is doing such great work. I should add that in addition to facilitating adoptions and foster care placements, it also has a pregnancy resource center. Churches, individual donors, and private grants fund both ministries. They don't take any government money at all. And New Hope has placed over a thousand children with adoptive agencies since it started. Orrin, we're going to change gears just a bit now. Still on the subject of religious liberty, but uh, broadening our scope a bit to talk about international religious liberty. The State Department is no longer making publicly available a number of statistics about refugees admitted to the United States, including their religious affiliation. And it sounds like a bureaucratic change or something that uh, is interested only maybe to tech geeks. But you say that this change is important. Why? Well, it's important because a lot of people come to this country who are fleeing religious persecution. And in fact, the federal government has set goals for resettling those people who do, in fact, face persecution. But without this information about religion, it's impossible to track the people who are actually fleeing persecution and those who are coming for other reasons. It's impossible to determine also if the government is honoring its promises. 
Is that why evangelical organizations are objecting to this change? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, The shift has raised concerns from World Relief and the Evangelical Immigration Table, which partners with both World Vision and the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. What's of particular interest, I think, is that the data has showed a precipitous drop in recent years in the number of Christian refugees that had been admitted to the United States from the 50 countries on Open Door USA's World Watch list. That's a an annual list that tracks where Christians faced the worst persecution. And this is especially troubling because President Donald Trump promised in his first days in office to make helping persecuted Christians a priority of his administration. It was one of the key promises he made to evangelicals to get evangelical support. But the last numbers made available by the State Department show that the number of Christians admitted from those countries had dropped by more than 83% during the four years of the Trump administration. Okay, Warren, let's look at one more story before we take a break. And I guess that you could call this one a religious liberty story too, but even some Christians are scratching their heads over this one. Yeah, they are. uh, And I'm one of them, I should say. Uh, Some of our listeners remember a story that we did a few weeks ago about the uh, Christian musician named uh, Sean Fuked, who did a so-called worship protest concert uh, in an outdoor facility on the West Coast because worship services had been banned there. Well, last Sunday, he brought that worship protest tour to Nashville, Tennessee. The only problem is Nashville doesn't have those same sorts of restrictions. Churches have to take precautions, but they can freely meet both indoors and outdoors. And Fute, who told the crowd that uh, he had met with much resistance from Nashville authorities, apparently met at least some of that resistance because he had failed to go through proper processes. He didn't get a permit for the gathering, for example, and that's one of the reasons why he had so much trouble getting the rally off the ground in the first place. And despite that, he still drew a crowd. Yeah, he did. I've seen photos myself, and uh, he played... uh, before a mostly maskless crowd that gathered in the public square in front of the Nashville Metropolitan Courthouse. Video of the event showed what looked to be several thousand tightly packed people jumping and raising their hands as Fuked and his band played. But some local churches, including some conservative and evangelical churches, have been less than impressed with Fuke's efforts. Yeah, Scott Sauls is a popular pastor and author in Nashville, and he called the rally not helpful to the Nashville church community. And Thomas McKenzie, who's the pastor of Church of the Redeemer, which is a conservative Anglican congregation, said, I don't mind people protesting where churches aren't able to meet, but Nashville makes no sense. McKenzie said that his congregation had been meeting for months. Um, And then he went on to say this, all I see is a concert, and it seems to be that This is more about Sean and less about Jesus. Warren, we need to take a little break, but when we return, new disclosures about the Wycliffe Associates. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. 
Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Warren, let's continue with an update on a story you've been following for several months, and that's the story of upheaval at the Bible translation giant Wycliffe Associates. Yeah, Bruce Smith, the former president, I should say now former president of uh, Wycliffe Associates, announced earlier this week that he is no longer the president and CEO of Wycliffe Associates, the Bible translation giant that last year reported about $49 million in revenue. Bruce Smith said on Facebook, today is the end of my season serving as president and CEO of Wycliffe Associates more than 20 years seeing God at work in and through this ministry. But neither Smith nor Wycliffe Associates announced the reason for his departure. No, they didn't, though Bruce Smith's departure follows nearly a year of scrutiny by Ministry Watch and other organizations that has resulted in fresh questions about Bruce Smith's leadership and the practices of Wycliffe Associates. It also comes just weeks after a meeting of the board of Wycliffe Associates that included a discussion of Smith's leadership of the organization and some of the questionable practices that we've been reporting on related to marketing and finance. Yeah, Ministry Watch started following this story back in February. Yeah, we did. Uh, on February 21st, in fact, uh, Wycliffe Associates resigned from the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. And that resignation kind of put it on our radar screen. And it was newsworthy because Wycliffe Associates had been one of the charter members of the ECFA. And the resignation was particularly striking because the resignation, though voluntary, came while Wycliffe Associates was under review of compliance, that's the ECFA's language, uh, compliance with its financial standards. So we started following the story then, and Ministry Watch discovered in our investigation that in the early 2000s, Wycliffe Associates had petitioned the Internal Revenue Service to classify itself as a church, which means that it didn't have to release its Form 990s to the public. It hasn't, in fact, done so since 2007. A key reason for the resignation of Wycliffe Associates from the ECFA uh, turns out to be Wycliffe Associates' inability to verify some of the claims that it was making about one of its Bible translation programs called MAST, which is an acronym for Mobilized Assistance Supporting Translation. MAST was reportedly delivered what Wycliffe Associates called miraculous results, dramatically speeding up the process of Bible translation from years to, in some cases, weeks. Now, Wycliffe Associates used those claims to raise millions of dollars, in fact, probably more than $10 million over a multi-year period. However, the evidence to support those claims is pretty thin. Uh, Wycliffe Associates claims, for example, that MAST had completed 318 New Testament translations and more than 1,300 translations were 
currently in process. But I asked repeatedly for a list of those translations, and Wycliffe Associates wasn't able to provide that list. And in, a, in 2015, a peer review assessment, uh, which included members of other large Bible translation organizations, all looked at the mass process and said that the rate of progress and the quality achieved clearly do not substantiate the claims made for the accelerated rate of translation through this mass technology. Oh, I understand there were also questions about the use of funds at Wycliffe Associates. Yeah, exactly. Not only how they were raising the funds by using these claims about MAST, but also how they were spending them. They spent uh, uh, more than $6.9 million on fundraising in 2016. That's 22% of overall revenue. And um, they had grown over the years to about $49 million, as I said. So all of that money poured into fundraising was working, but the fundraising costs kept going up as well. Now it's over $7 million. And that's far more than the average of the 600 or so ministries that we have in the Ministry Watch database. Warren, another story Ministry Watch reported on this week came from Missouri, the Circle of Hope Girls Ranch in Humansville, Missouri. Tell us what happened there. Well, the Circle of Hope Girls Ranch is uh, kind of an interesting organization. Uh, it 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 bills itself as a boarding school for troubled girls, a place where families could send their daughters kind of as a last resort uh, to get some tough love after other approaches failed. But former students and even the daughter of the school's founders reported that there was an atmosphere of abuse there and a Authorities shut the school down uh, within the last couple of weeks. It's actually kind of been a rolling shutdown. Authorities removed all the girls from the ranch and conducted a search of the property back in August, and that became part of a criminal investigation. And finally, on September 23rd, two anonymous women who said that they had resided at the ranch's teenagers filed separate civil lawsuits in Cedar County, which is where the ranch um, it, you know, is, where it's located, alleging that the co-owners or his son raped them and reported other incidents of sexual, physical abuse and neglect at the facility. And then finally, another anonymous woman filed a claim against Circle of Hope on October 2nd. Wow, those allegations are absolutely horrible. How did they come to light? Well, that's a story in and of itself. Uh, the Circle of Hope Girls Ranch was owned by a couple, Boyd and Stephanie Householder. Um, they, of course, have denied ever abusing or neglecting any of the residents, but their daughter, Amanda Householder, and other former residents are the ones that actually came forward to blow the whistle on the senior householders. Amanda Householder, the daughter, is now 29 years old, and other former residents uh, began posting videos alleging neglect and abuse at the Circle of Hope Girls Ranch, and they also provided some hidden camera evidence as well. Uh, I've seen that that hidden camera video. In fact, we've got it in our story posted on our website, and it's pretty chilling, but it's also pretty convincing. So this apparently went on for years. Why didn't authorities shut it down sooner? Well, in total, at least 15 people said that they reported abuse at the ranch to at least six different local and state and federal authorities in Missouri. But once again, it took the victims coming forward, plus some parents who got suspicious to cause local authorities to finally take action. And again, Natasha, as I've seen over and over again, and 
I've written about pretty extensively in uh, the new book that we've got out called Faith-Based Fraud, the government is usually not the first line of defense when it comes to rooting out bad actors in ministry. It almost always takes donors and victims, and I should add courageous victims, speaking up, and that's certainly what happened here. Well, good for them. Now, Warren, one more quick story before we break. The flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention decided Monday, October 12th, to maintain the names of campus buildings named for uh, school founders who had connections to slavery. At the same meeting, the trustees of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary created a multi-million dollar scholarship fund for African-American students. And the decision didn't settle the issue, though. No, it certainly didn't. And, and on the one hand, the president of the seminary, Al Mohler, uh, said, we're not going to erase our history in any respect or leave our history unaddressed. We are seeking to respond to the moral and theological burden of history by being a far more faithful institution in the present and in the future than we've been in the past. And in this central respect, we acknowledge a special debt to African-American Christians. So that statement kind of cuts both ways, I guess you could say. The school did make a decision to rename an endowed chair that had previously been named after a slaveholder. And as you said, Natasha, they did establish a multi-million dollar scholarship fund for black seminary students. But a number of black pastors in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, have taken to social media with their criticism of these decisions. Um, They said that they were steps in the right direction, but they weren't nearly enough. And that they said that they hope that these latest decisions would be part of a continuing journey for the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to take another break. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we like to close our program each week with a good news story. This week, an interesting story from England. Yeah, it is uh, from across the pond, as they say, uh, when a, a United Kingdom toy shop came on the market. Oh, golly, it's been now almost 40 years ago. Gary and Kath Grant said that they knew nothing about the toy industry. But Gary um, was good with numbers and business, so he purchased the toy store, and his sole intent was to make as much money as possible. Gary was one of those guys that was driven to succeed, and he'd come from kind of a poor upbringing, so man, he had his eyes set on the wealth. Uh, One toy store quickly became three toy stores, and along the way, uh, they did start making a good bit of money. But Kath, his wife, 
uh, also became a Christian as a result of the influence of some of her uh, friends in a sort of a local Bible study and coffee gathering. Then Kath bought Gary a ticket to a men's breakfast at the church that she had started going to. And that morning, many years ago now, Gary turned his life over to Christ as well. Uh, that's wonderful. When was that? Well, yeah, 1991 was uh, when Gary became a Christian. And the first thing that happened is that Gary created a statement of company values for how he would treat customers, suppliers, and even his own staff. I've got to say, in fact, even Gary would say this himself, that the idea of tithing or giving away even significant amounts of money was tough for him to get his arms around at first. They had been financially successful beyond their original dreams, but they had become addicted to all the toys, the big house. They had a couple of Mercedes Benzes in the garage, Gary said. But he didn't mind letting his staff give money away. So he set up this matching gift fund for his staff. Um, uh, that made it a business expense, and it was also kind of a benefit for the staff uh, itself, so it kind of made them feel better. But after Gary started kind of seeing how much joy the staff members had giving money away, uh, that sort of grabbed him as well. And he set up a charity that allowed customers to round up their purchases to the nearest dollar or pound. Remember, this is England. And over the next five years, they gave away almost $2 million through that program. The business continued to grow. And 35 years later, after buying that little toy shop, the business now has 120 toy stores uh, throughout Europe and several franchises. Uh, Gary and Kath now view their own giving as a more important part of their life's work than building the business itself. In fact, Gary said, when I look back at my legacy, will I be more proud of the business that we've built, the money that we've made, or the people's lives that we've been able to impact? And for Gary and Kath, I think the answer is now pretty obvious. Wow, that is such a wonderful story to close with. Well, it really is, though, as usual, I've just touched the tip of the iceberg here. Uh, it's a really a great story. You find a lot more information about Gary and Kath and sort of their personal journeys as well. To learn more about it, you can go to the Ministry Watch website and you'll find the story right on the front page. Now, Warren, before we go, I know you have a couple of updates about Ministry Watch for us. Yeah, I do. Um, I want to remind everybody uh, some, about something that I mentioned last week, that we're going to be doing a webinar on the topic, how to find and read a Form 990. A Form 990, uh, again, is the form that nonprofit ministries have to fill out every year. It's a lot like a tax return, except, of course, tax-exempt organizations don't pay taxes. But it does have a lot of helpful information on it, and we here at Ministry Watch look at them probably every day. In fact, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, we think all donors should examine a ministry's Form 990 before they donate to that ministry, but a lot of donors have told me that they don't even know where to find them or what to look for once they do find them. So that's why we're going to offer this webinar, uh, starting with the very basics, like where do I go to find one? The webinar, again, is called How to Find and Read a Form 990. That webinar will take place on Wednesday, October 28th, so a couple of weeks from now, at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark your calendars, and we'll have information about how to sign up for that webinar on the Ministry Watch website, plus it's in all of my daily emails. Now, since you were speaking of faith-based fraud earlier in the program, you've got news about that, too. 
I do. Regular listeners to this podcast, or maybe if you're a regular recipient of my daily emails, uh, you know that throughout the month of September, we offered a copy of my new book, Faith-Based Fraud, to anybody who made a donation to Ministry Watch. The demand for that book was so great that we had to go into a second printing just to satisfy the September uh, folks. And we figured, well, as long as we did that, we may as well extend it through October as well. So if you missed the offer in September, it's definitely not too late. Uh, If you'd like to know more about the book or how to make a donation, go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page, and you'll see some links there about uh, how to both find out more about the book and how to make a donation. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosalind, Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DuBerry, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Adele Banks, Christina Darnell, Ann Stike, and Warren Smith. I'm Natasha Smith in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. May God bless you.